the wayward wind is a restless wind. Michelle with the Wayward Woman podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Hey, how is everybody? I'm so excited. Today we have an amazing guest, Laura. <laughs> Laura, you're just meeting this wonderful woman. Um, she recently moved to the city that we live in about two years ago, and she has so much awareness and wisdom, and I've been so fortunate to learn from her while we were working together. Um, and I asked her if she'd want to be on. She said yes. So I was really happy about that and um, just super honored that you're here today. You have tons of experience. This woman has tons of experience in the field of domestic abuse. I'm going to introduce her. We are going to welcome Cozy on today uh, at Wayward Women. Thank you for being here. Hi, Cozy. Hi, guys. <laughs> really excited to be here with you today. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. It's, uh, for listeners, we're on Zoom and we can all see each other. So it's nice that I get to see uh, their beautiful faces today. It makes my heart happy. But, um, Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm just going to get into the questions and see, you know, kind of what you feel comfortable sharing. And I really want to hear your wisdom because even though we work together, we didn't get to sit together too much around what you did prior to when you were at the agency that we worked for. So I know you have a, a lot of experience there, but when you came into our agency, you were just like, go, 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 jumping in, helping, like, like have so much awareness and wisdom. It was just like you belonged right away. Um, so I was going to ask, how long have you been an advocate, a total of years, with the, uh, with the domestic abuse piece? So I've been working in the family violence field for about, I'd say, hmm, at least 28 years. Wow. This is my first. And um, I should say only love thus far um, when it comes to my uh, professional career. That's incredible. 28 years. Holy moly. It's, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to put down, right? Even though I'm not working for the agency anymore, I still do this because it's, you know, it's like you can't unsee once you see. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so what different roles have you done within the work? Um, have you done with as far as working with um, domestic abuse agencies? Oh, wow. Okay. So I um, started out actually volunteering at a uh, local back then. They were called battered women's shelters because they didn't understand that men too experience abuse. Um, and so I volunteered at their children's group and um, I really just fell in love with the work. And as soon as um, an advocate position came available. I immediately applied. It was an overnight position and um, it was really exciting to be able to do that. And I found that 
experiencing a lot of different calls on the crisis line throughout the night. I thought, oh, this is not going to be very difficult because it's an overnight thing. Who's going to call in the middle of the night? You know, I had no idea, but that's when I would get a ton of calls from a variety of people. And the thing I found most interesting was that it was people, because we were a small town. Um, and so it was people that were of varied um, income levels. So there were people, you know, um, I volunteered in my community a lot. And so I, I might hear a voice and recognize it. And of course I couldn't say that I recognized mm -hmm. that voice. And interestingly enough, I sound very different on the phone. So people never knew it was me. And um, I just found it really interesting, the varied income levels, um, affluences that were calling in at different hours for very similar things. Mm -hmm. Everyone, you know, abuse. It looked a little different with each person, but it was all abuse. Yeah, that's a... what. I'm just sorry. I'm just curious when, when you said you were surprised um, about the different income levels and the different people impacted, what surprised you about that? Did you, did you go into it thinking something different or? Yeah. Um, at that time I had just started my human services studies. So I hadn't had any really formal education surrounding um, the subject and um my frame of reference and what I saw on television was that um, violence, domestic violence, was all a people of color thing and a low income thing. Um, you know, what TV show do you ever remember seeing as a child where um, people that were white were abusing one another in their home? That just mm. wasn't something that was ever shown. That's really interesting you said that because I think that's really true. I think in society, there's still in 2021 a stigma that abuse only happens to lower income people, blue collar people, people in minorities. Like, I don't think that people realize it is it has it has no limit. Absolutely. Um, you know, well, and I think. This is actually, sorry to interrupt you, Cozy. I think this is a good time to plug in um, since we're on the topic, because when I had asked you, you know, is there anything specific you would like to talk about or go into? And, and when you're thinking about domestic abuse, you brought up intersectionality. So I think this is a perfect time to go into that and the stigma. Um, but first of all, if you don't mind sharing with the listeners, because some people don't know what intersectionality is, if you're okay, um, just uh, saying what that is. And then I think that fits perfectly into what you're saying about your experience um, around, you know, that stigma. Sure, so intersectionality really speaks to all the pieces of a person. So whether it's sex, um, race, you know, how you identify your sexual orientation, religion, disability, your experiences, um, whatever that might look like, trauma-based experiences, your experience of privilege. People sometimes think that privilege doesn't count, but your, um, your intersectionalities is the most meaningful pieces of you. 
And all of those pieces matter. And all of those pieces really speak to how you are discriminated against or not, how your privilege shows or not. Um, so really that's what intersectionality is about. And it's so important to me because I know for many years, um, for as long as I can remember, and even still today, people who are not of color fear looking at individuality when it comes to race and ethnicity. Um, often, I think because back in the 60s, 70s kind of movement, it was like, hey, we're all one, we're all the same, you know, and it really was, I think, birthed out of um, people wanting to be inclusive and really not wanting to have that division, what they thought was division by separating race and things of that nature. But however, in doing so, you fail to see the individual. You fail to see the individual. We can't all be the same. We're not all the same. Our experiences aren't all the same. Mm -hmm. Society doesn't treat us all the same. So if you choose not to see my blackness, then you choose not to see me, which means you can't serve me in the way I need to be served. You can serve me in the way you want to serve me, but you can't serve me in the way I need you to serve me. So I think when people started talking about race and it started being the forefront, there's a lot of resistance because there's a lot of fear that people that talking about intersectionalities and race might somehow mean um, creating division, uh, superiority. Me, the one thing that I know to be true is that many people feel like for you to see me as an equal somehow means that you lose something. For you to see someone black, someone of color as equal means that you as the dominant population somehow lose something and you really lose nothing. Because we're not asking, I'm not asking to be above you. I'm asking to be next to you. I'm asking for you to just take a little step to the left so that I can just come up beside you. That's all. Not to be over you or to take anything from you. And to be honest, let's keep it real. I couldn't take anything from you if I wanted to because our system is rooted in a different level of superiority. But what I can do is I can totally contribute and run with you and I can keep up with you if you allow me to start at the front of the line with you. And heck, to be honest, I probably can catch up with you even if you put me a little bit behind. But man, if you don't even let me join the race. And that's what happens when it comes to intersectionality and especially when we're talking about survivors. Wow. I used to work not at a... I worked at, I started my work, like I told you, at a women's shelter. I worked there for 10 years. I actually had two jobs because I worked a day job and I worked a night job. Um, and the night job was at the shelter. Um, and what I saw was women of color being exited and not finishing the pro, rarely finishing the entire program. Um, due to things being said like, 
she's violent. Hmm. She's uncooperative. She doesn't want to participate. Um, it was all fear-based language and I didn't understand it in the beginning. And as I did my studies more and more, because more and more and more I started studying and I realized it's not about the per person. It's not about the client. It's about the individual serving the client. When, and it, the main reason was it's about their reaction. So what would happen was a woman of color would come in for their um, case management sessions. And the person would start asking them about finances or start asking them about um, their children. And um, the way the questioning was, it might put a woman on color on edge due to fear because of systems, because she's been, she's experienced harm from systems. So now she's scared because you're asking these questions. And so she starts to say, well, why do you need to know this? What does this have to do with helping me get out of my domestic situation? What does this have to, ha what does this have to do with helping me get housing? It's like she comes into now, it with another trauma already. Yes. And now all of a sudden you're scared because she's asking you these questions and you weren't expecting someone to ask you questions. And so now you're like, she's not being cooperative because she's not fully submissive to your um, program dialogue. Right. And so then you start to get nervous because she's like, what's the problem? Like, why can't you answer me? Um, and what I know to be true is many African Americans, um, when there's something exciting, when there's something emotional, um, we speak louder and we're not, it's not that we're being violent. It's just, we speak louder, you know? Um, and if you come from my family, we're just loud people anyway. Mm. So then she, her voice elevates and now you're fearful and you're saying, you know, please don't yell at me. And she's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not yelling at you. And now she's getting really irritated because first of all, you're not answering her question about why you need to know the information. Second of all, now you're accusing me of yelling at you. And then your body language surely is showing fear of me. And now I'm really upset because again, once again, here I am, put myself out here. I left a situation that I knew how to navigate, but I knew it wasn't safe. I left to come here, which we don't do. And then I'm experiencing this. And now you're saying, I don't know that if the shelter is the best place for you and your kids. And now I'm going to be homeless or with family again. And so that was this cycle that I would see happening over and over and over again. And I would see people that were very submissive to the dialogue, submissive to the program and didn't ask questions. Those women would go through the whole program. They'd get optimum services, transitional services. Things were a lot easier for them. But women who actually um, tried to exercise a voice, it wasn't the same way. Was it and that way for women, of for all the women, or did you primarily notice that in women of color? Like if like a white woman had said like, why do you need to know that? Were they like, 
did they explain it to her or like was there like a difference in how they were treating um, you know black women versus I, yeah I see what you're saying yes it definitely was a woman of color thing and I believe wow. because it was a fear-based thing yeah because a white woman she still could make it through the program yeah. but what I noticed was women of color were not making it through the program. They were not making it through the 30 days. They were not getting the extensions. Those things were just not happening. I think it's really interesting, well, it's interesting. too that you noticed without like, I just think it's interesting that you noticed that and you didn't know what it was at the time, but it was like enough that you caught a pattern and started to go, whoa, wait, what is, why is this happening? Oh, while. It took a while because, you know, we didn't have a lot of black women. Right. You know, had some Hispanic women, which, mind you, even then, Hispanic women um, in my community were, you know, um, we had, a, 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 you know, Spanish-speaking advocates, of course, and things. And as long as they were more um, submissive in terms of dialogue and the program and went along, they would make it through pretty well. But then we'd have those that just... Um, would be more outspoken and things and would not, it would not make it, but, but most of them did. It really was about the black participants. And um, like I say, we didn't have a lot, but then when I started asking, because my agency was a countywide and it was a three city County. So when I would ask the other staff members, like, how is, you know, how do you, you know, your African-American participant clients, rather is what we call them. Um, you know, how do they do? Like, do they make it through the program? No, no. Most of the time they go back, they go to a family members or something, or they end up going back to their abuser, things like that. And um, so I really started asking questions. And then when staff would leave our agency, I connected with a few of those and they would say, well, you know, this person, just really wasn't cooperative. Well, what does that mean? Well, right. she got into an argument with this staff or that staff. Well, what was it about? And when I started looking at it, it really wasn't about the person. It was about the staff that just had these preconceived notions about black women. And even at times I would hear the words, oh, but she'll be okay because, you know, she um, was strong. She knew how to get resources. She was going to be okay. What does that mean? She's going to be okay being homeless better than anyone else that's homeless. She's not going to have the same struggles living on the street as somebody else because she's a black woman. I don't understand that. And then it's like people shut down because people don't want to have that dialogue. People don't want to have that dialogue. It's, it's interesting too. Um, sorry to interrupt, Rosie. And thank you for talking about all of this because I would imagine it can be pretty draining as a woman of color, having to explain these things. So I appreciate you taking the time to explain. And I was thinking about how, you know, first of all, I was the person that said, I don't see color. And I'm not saying that to be like, you know, oh, I'm so woke or whatever. I'm just saying that because it's a real thing with white people. Like we need to make a choice to wake up and educate ourselves, including me. Like I have to continue to educate myself. Um, and that was the problem is that I didn't see color, which means I had the privilege of not having to, I had the privilege of not informing myself, which isn't okay because people are dying because just because the color of their skin and it's rooted, 
you know, you can speak to it more than I can, obviously, but it's so rooted. It's everywhere, everywhere I see. And so when you're talking about the sixties, I thought about, as I, um, been educating myself a lot. I did not know that when women received the right to vote, that didn't apply to women of color, just white women. I had no, I was like, wow. And I think about, you know, how you said too, you know, just let me get in line. Just let me get beside you because I can keep up. I think you could bypass, like you could go past me, not just keep up, but go past. And, and the reason I say that is because I don't know what it's like. I have no idea what it's like, but I'm imagining having to navigate the world in this way. You have to learn how to um, cope or have a voice. You have to fight to have a voice. And so that's not okay. And it seems like as a woman, I know that I have to fight to have a voice in many spaces, but I'm also not a black woman. So there's that extra piece. But I also think about how when Laura said you didn't know, you know, even though it was going on, it reminds me of abuse, right? Because I can look back in my in my relationships and go, oh, wow, that person actually sexually assaulted me. That actually is really unhealthy. And I had no idea that I was experiencing abuse. And so I think I just thought of that, that that came up for me when you were saying, you know, you weren't, you weren't really seeing it because I, Pardon my ignorance, but do you think part of not seeing it is because marginalized communities are like forced to integrate kind of, do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, I do. So absolutely. Um, We have been raised to blend. Um, We know how to code shift very well, meaning I know, meaning I, I used to be on, for example, a, the agency I worked for that was the only um, full service domestic violence agency in the county um, was operated in Santa Barbara County, which is extremely affluent. I mean, if you think about it, you think like the Oprah's of the world live there. Um, Kenny Loggins, those people, you know, just really obviously very affluent individuals. And um, so I joined their board they asked me to join their executive board because they needed somebody to fill a box. They never had anybody black. And if they wanted to keep funding in certain areas, they needed somebody black. So I went in knowing that I was going to be a token, but I did it with a little pain, but I, mostly because I believed in the services that were being provided and I knew it was needed. And so it was worth it for me to be a part of keeping something going that was vital for my community and the county I lived in. So, but I knew, I mean, it was, I, when I think back at, I had to drive an hour to the board meetings um, because I didn't live in Santa Barbara. Um, My city was an hour from there. Drive home. I would have to fight shame quite often because I'm in a room, mind you, with millionaires. People who are doing this because they feel bad or some that have actually experienced domestic abuse themselves, um, you know, but they fully aren't... um, 
out of the closet, so to speak, um, but they wanted their money to speak for them. And that's okay. Wherever you're at with that, that's fine. It's your story. Um, but um, I, I, I know I, I can remember the difficulties sometime of, you know, being in those spaces and not having not even a, a portion, a, a portion of the fund, the monies that those individuals had. And one of the things about being a part of the board was always that if you're part of an executive board to that level, you give, you give annually because that's your contribution. Now I mind you, I went in very clear and said when they recruited me, Hey, I can't give. I cannot give anything other than my time and my energy and my experiences. That's what I can give. They were happy with that because again, I checked the box. But then there were times where I was on it for several years and I became the vice president and things of that nature where um, there were members of the board that were really throwing a lot of um, pressure my way. You know, and they were doing it in these very um, microaggression ways. Um, well, we know that everybody needs to give because this is what we're committed to. This is how we keep our work going. Now, mind you, they didn't need my money to keep anything going. They didn't need my money, but it was a way to say, we know that you're not giving um and i and 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 i did i i i at one time it really i can remember it driving home just being in tears because it really took a toll on me it took a toll um but i also made some really great friends i also got to see um how board structures work i got to put a different perspective in the room. Um, I got to speak truth. Um, there was some restructuring, some reorganization. Do I think that they fully um, embraced all the uh, systemic changes that needed to happen? No, but definitely more than it was. Um, so I count the experience worth it. I count the scars worth it. Um, Unfortunately, my city doesn't have a really active um, DV agency because that was one of the things that I constantly fought for was that um, the two other cities that were part of the agency were growing and the funds were kind of going to them. Kind of my city was a little bit of a stepchild. And so those funds kept being diverted to the more um, affluent cities. So that's disappointing, but I know that the work I did in, in the time that I was there um, was meaningful, was meaningful, but yet it, 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 it had a cost. Um, you know, I went to the teas, uh, the fundraising teas and did all the things, you know, and I took my daughter with me so she could see. And like I say, I was loved for as much as they could love me without seeing me. Because I know that 99.9% .9 of the women and men that I engaged with did not see me. And so um, it was a necessary, it's one of those 
kind of um, horrible wonderfuls is what I call them. It's horrible um, in the fact that there is a lot of collateral damage, but it's wonderful in the moment to be able to have any impact on systemic uh, change. And sometimes you, you get scarred. You have a few scars to show for it, but you learn and you learn how to do it better at the next place that you go to. Kirsten, and so, oh, sorry. you know, no, no. So that, so kind of that was that, um, you know, bit of a journey and um, intersectionality really did matter. Um, we, it was a large Hispanic community in Santa Barbara mm -hmm. that, we, that we served. And so, um, interestingly enough, if you had that intersectionality, you might get more services because it was the thing to do. Yeah. It were the people to help. Especially in California and Arizona. Yeah, at that time, mm -hmm. right? It's the people to help, the thing to do, the grants you're going to mm -hmm. get. Black has never been popular. Black has never been the thing to do. And that's what people forget. And I know that my brown brothers and sisters suffer greatly in so many areas. But if you want to really keep it 100, Black has never been the thing to do or the people to lift and help. People talk about affirmative action and all that. It does that was not even a drop in a bucket. Mm. It was not even a drop in a bucket. It is that was it's nice. It's nice, but it wasn't a drop in a bucket. What what does affirmative action mean when you can't get to college, when you can't get an education, when you can't even access you're not even on the road to affirmative action. So it doesn't mean anything. What about the day-to-day -day programming? I can remember how um, my mom worked very hard and she worked two jobs with my mom was on welfare. And one of my earliest memories as a child, and I don't have many, um, is someone coming through the neighborhood saying that the social worker, the welfare worker was in the neighborhood doing home visits because they used to do that back in the day in the 70s and people were hiding things you'd have to hide stuff because if you had something that looked new even if you got it from a thrift store they'd write that down and penalize you oh my god and they would go through the projects in the neighborhoods and do that and then i can remember one of my other childhood memories was that my mom like i said she worked two jobs Somehow she made a little too much and they, she didn't get a welfare check in December. So I can remember her being in tears, um, not being able to provide uh, gifts for her children. And um, it's the system that works like that, that keeps people in this state of trauma, perpetual trauma. It's like, did I do all the things right? Did I check all the boxes off? Are they gonna give me an opportunity to fix it before they just don't send my check and I don't have an idea and it comes in the mail like, well, sorry, you didn't check this box on this out, this piece of this month's report, so you're not getting the check this month. You know, the system's not set up 
for success, punitive. It's dependent. It's not growth. It's not progress. Now, mind you, things have changed drastically, um, but even still, you're not getting warnings. Like, hey, just so you know, this wasn't done correctly. You need to do this because if it doesn't happen, then the following month, you're not going to get a check versus you didn't get a check. And this is why. I think it's so, you know, I find it really interesting, Cozy, that, sorry, I want to hop in real quick. First of all, I just wanted to thank you so much for sharing because I can see how painful it is for you to share this. And I just really appreciate you doing this, this podcast, because this isn't easy and I can see that. Um, so it's I just feel really honored. It's going to come, you know, you don't, I don't, you, yeah. I don't remember how it impacted me, but this is what I mean about how trauma shows up, right? You don't even realize it still impacts you, but it does. Mm-hmm. And then people, if I was to say, go into a setting where I needed support, um, say I went to the doctors today, right? And I've been triggered. And I go in and I'm not very... Um, uh, maybe I feel like I'm not very patient because I just want to get seen, get helped and be done because I'm already have these negative experiences in the back of my head. And now they flooded to the top of me because I've been triggered by maybe talking about the subject. And now instead of the person seeing my humanity, they, they look, view me as an angry black woman, an impatient black woman. And now they put me in that category. And so they start to treat me like that. Instead of just seeing, I have a person in the doctor's office, clearly here for a reason that they need help. It doesn't matter how they show up. They're in some type of pain or they wouldn't be here. Let me look at pain versus judging a person. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm learning as you share. And so again, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Like I want to cry, but it's not my pain. You know, I, and I know that, right? And so that's not helpful to you. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I think, first of all, when, when I first started doing the work, when I would look up intersectionality, I could not find anything, anything. That's how, you know, ingrained it is, right? So I think about the beautiful Kimberly Crenshaw who presented the, um, she made, you know, this um, intersectionality. Um, and the work that she's done is pretty incredible. And so I just think it's important for people to know, um, her name. Um, and also, you know, I'm thinking about how, yeah, oh, no, um, how we think about how intersectionality plays into abuse. And there's so many things that I have learned over time, like, you know, Someone who is a person of color is not going to call the police for obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, we don't have the, you know, they don't have the same privilege, people with marginalized communities. And, and that's, that's just part of the problem. Right. And I think about everything is rooted in racism. I see that. And, and I think we, (laughs) sorry to say, I feel like we burn it all down, (laughs) but I know it's going to take time and I know it's going to take work. And I, for listeners out there who are white, it's, 
it's, a, it's really critical that we make the choice to educate ourselves and continue to educate ourselves. And I'm not saying that from like, uh, I know better standpoint. I fuck up all the time. I make mistakes. I, I have internalized racism. We all do, whether we want to admit it or not, but just even people. I hope they, yeah. And I, and I really hope listeners are, are hearing you and listening because what I've been told is just listen, listen. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's time. It's, it's been, been taught a really long time. What do it's you like, mean, well, even people of color? Can you expound on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we all have learned how to survive yeah. in this world. And we've all been taught by our forefathers that this is the way you do it. Um, you know, the um, white um, people have been taught that, you know, we're the dominant population and this is what's beautiful and this is what constitutes as ugly and this is what's good and this is what constitutes as what's bad and all of these things and people of color have learned the same thing. So we've all learned the same um, or been taught the same kind of lessons, right? We've all been um, in school together. We all learned the same, um, but we just knew that one part of the lesson applied to people of color and one part of the lesson applied to those who weren't of color. Mm. It was the same lesson, but you received it differently based on the color of your skin. So now we all have to um, learn how to throw all those lessons out yeah, unlearn. and say, this is a, like, it's almost like we all have to say that we've all been taught false doctrine. Yes. We've all been taught something, a lie, right? We've all been taught the lie. We all have lived the lie, all of us. And now we have to be retrained because of course, there are many African-Americans that are going to resent, um, people in the dominant population for various reasons. Um, and so, yeah, there's definitely racism on all spectrums in all races. Um, you know, unfortunately, African-Americans have to battle another internal racism in terms of our own um, colorism and shades of black that we are. Um, I know that all the shades are beautiful, however, when you grow up with a society that says lighter is better, right? then the darker you are, you experience more. That's another whole intersectionality that people don't even look at no. is the shade of your skin. It's so crazy to me too. Cause like you've said a couple things today that have just like, like, you know, like, like, like saying like, when you were at that first agency that you were their token, like that is almost heartbreaking to hear that like you, like you're human, you're not a freaking token. You know what I mean? And it's like, or saying like, you know, even like, you know, like how you're saying that, like, um, we're all taught crappy things. We're all taught this lie. But then, like you said, there's like a trend of like, oh, it's trend, not saying that Latino and Hispanic people should not be helped also, but you're right, like for like, there's like a trend of like, we have money, grant money for them, right? Or, and, and not black people or like, there's just so much, like there's also this like lie and deny, we're all taught this lie, but we also <laughs> deny our history and aren't even taught. Like we, I literally like was just 
listening to a speech the other day in my Toastmasters group where somebody was giving a speech about how we don't even, today we don't even teach about the violence that was committed against black people. And they used to put the, they would take pictures of them hanging people and put it on postcards as keepsakes. Like they don't teach that in school. And that is something that black people have to live with. So it, of course you like, of course it makes it's sense. Traumatizing. That's what they say. It's traumatizing. It's Real history is too traumatizing. And I'm like, and then we lie and deny it. it and see how traumatizing it is. You don't have to live it. Yeah. You're studying it. You don't have to live it. Think about right. living. Right. So then you get like you're saying, you get a black woman that. that comes in for services saying, My husband's being abusive. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, don't there's the black woman being really freaking out right now. And it's just like, my mind is blown right now. And it's like, it's just I so these are the conversations that I think that are, are, are that I think that I would get a mixed bag review when it comes to say someone, um, an African-American person um, hearing me say these things, because I think that um, there's a good portion of African-Americans that's that, that say, you know, let them figure it out yeah. on their right. You know, and that's valid for sure, for sure. But I also think that there's a group of us too that say, if they ask, tell them. Yeah. If yeah. they want to know, tell them. I tell them. Well, that's why I'm so grateful that that you're doing this today yeah. because this isn't new, right? This isn't new for people of color. No. And then white people come out like, oh my God. Is like, and I don't speak for all our life. color, right? I don't speak for all people of color. We all have different experiences. Um, mind you, what people don't even realize is that there are many, 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 many affluent African-American uh, men and women and have been for centuries that aren't rappers, gangsters, actors, mm. actresses, just badass, everyday, intelligent, educated men and women who have worked hard for generations to build um, financial stability and wealth and, um, and have been living all over, you know, the world and people just don't see them because those aren't the people that are put in the forefront. When you see something happening, if you go back and you look at different um, activities, uh, uh, I don't want, sorry, I don't want to call it activities, uh, forgive me, but um, crimes, incidences, I mean, that have happened, atrocities, um, involving African-Americans. If you go back and look at the news, um, what you will see is them interviewing seemingly the most unput together individual in the crowd. Yeah, They're not interviewing someone who looks more put together. They're purposely interviewing people that look not put together because that's how they betray us. That's how they want us betrayed. Um, it's entertainment. Yeah. It's not education. It's not um, uh, quality news reporting. It's ratings. It's, it, it's ratings. And so um, 
that's what happens. That's what happens. And um, it makes the world laugh. And um, even African-Americans, sometimes we laugh. But when we look at it and look at what's behind the reporting, it's tragic because it's just another way for society to demean us yeah. and to discriminate against us. Um, you look at George Floyd and you look at the first things that um, people tried to say, oh, he was stealing, oh, he was on drugs, all of these things, right? None of that has nothing to do with his murder. Right, exactly. None of Doesn't that has nothing right. to do with the murder, but we're so quick mm-hmm. to see the intersectionality justify right like oh well, he stole something so he does really does that mean he deserved to die it's the intersectionality that people saw instead of the humanity right they said they used it as the, his intersectionalities as a dis- way to discriminate against him and try to discredit him instead of looking at it as um he's a black man who may or may not have committed a crime, who was detained, and no, no, no matter what happened next, there was no resistance. There was no, there was no threat no. to the officer. There's no weapons. And yet, people still tried to justify his murder, you know, based on his blackness, his history of maybe drug abuse, um, but yet none of that, even according to the law, matters in terms of his murder. You know, I want to I want to say something too because you brought up in a re- you brought up a point that I think a lot of people don't think about and 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 you said and and going back to when you said let's say a black woman comes in for services right and she's being questioned it's this trauma that she is from childhood from experience from society from in her genetic in her dna like there's this trauma like that you said that's like oh my gosh like why am i being questioned am i in trouble like is something wrong so there's a trauma on top of the trauma And I think like people don't understand that that is a very real thing, like, like totally off subject, but like my family history is Czechoslovakian and for, I have no idea how long, hundreds of years they were under communism. Right. And, and communism fell what in the eighties. And I remember going to visit um, in 2008. And I remember my parents had lived there actually were living there at the time. And I remember saying, why is everyone walking around whispering? It was like, you could hear a pin drop in the middle of the city. It's like on the train, you know, and you're like, why, why is everybody so quiet? This is so weird. And my parents were like, because all they've ever known is to shut up and to be under this thumb and 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 I'm like I know but that's been done for 20 plus years. Yeah, but you tell them that they don't <laughs> that's what they're tradition. Ex- tradition. Exactly. So it's like people don't understand there's this deep 
trauma and conditioning and our <laughs> society does it to a specifically black people somebody like conditioning I am, becomes a tradition yes oh my gosh that's so good condition becomes a tradition so then you think george floyd black people who get arrested they have that trauma or, or dante Wright. dante Wright. He, and, yeah, and I, I think you could, know, well, could just go on and on and on, right, Brianna Taylor? You could just go on and on about all tradition. of the conditions. And that what happened is with the dominant population when it comes to law enforcement in particular is that they have been conditioned that no one is above them. Yeah. They're able to do whatever they want to do. They're a brotherhood that will always cover each other and have each other's back, which has been historically shown. And so it's become a tradition of targeting, a tradition of discrimination, a tradition of um, assumptions. Yeah. This black man driving this nice car must be a drug dealer, must be doing something illegal, because how could he be intelligent enough to yeah. own this without having to have done something illegal to get it? So it's those mindsets that that conditioning that has become a tradition because even if you look at there's a lot of asian hate going on right now which yeah. is just horrific yeah. but even so an asian person um an asian male will be a preferred over an african-american male because he's the going to be the smart male yeah they're going to totally. assume that the asian person is intelligent or at least more intelligent than the African-American male. Mm -hmm. Think about when they talk about discrimination, people look at all these different people of color. Yes, all people of color are discriminated against. However, put any person of color up against an African-American person, and I can guarantee you the African-American person is going to lose every time um, in the eyes of the dominant population. Whoever said, oh, I want to be changed into a black woman or a black male, that's just the reality of it. No one ever said by no one who wasn't black because you know what you're gonna be up against. So even when you say you don't see color, that's what I would challenge people who say that to think about, oh, I don't see color. Okay, then let's make you black today. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute, hold up. No, I don't wanna be black. Do you see what's happened to black people? Ah, so you do see color. Yeah. You just choose to ignore it. Do you guys remember back well, in the Oh, and I want to hop in real quick. Can I hop in real quick? Yeah. Because I just wanted to. I just wanted to touch on something. First of all, cozy. I I just I can't thank you enough. Um, because I do hear that if someone asks, tell them. But I also know we have to be accountable as as white people and not put the labor on people to teach mm -hmm. us because that that's not true accountability uh, and not like being dismissive of, of your thoughts or anything. I just want to make that clear to the listeners. No, like, that's don't not assume that, for sure. Right. Don't general, you know, don't generalize people in general, but don't assume that, you know, like you said, I can't speak for, for all black people. Yeah. And I think, I think people, if you take the time 
to get, because there are so many pieces to this. Like, mm-hmm. you know, look it up, look it up. Like people who assume that a black man in a nice car is a drug dealer. Also, if you live in a poor neighborhood and there are zero options and what are you going to do? Are you going to work at McDonald's for like $9 an hour? Is that, or are you going to sell drugs so you can afford to like help your family out as the child? Like and these we are situations. Let our people off like that, you know, like we know that no, people sell totally drugs not. and do drugs and things like that. But honestly, we know that um, we are intelligent and we um, challenge um, our youth and our and and members of our society who believe that that is the best way or the only way we you know I'm not judging how anybody feels like they have to survive however I also want to be a person that's going to challenge that thought and to offer other solutions and bring that person along with me and alongside me as well um, what the challenge is to me for white people is to challenge white people. Right. You guys are great sometimes with, some of you are great with owning your own stuff, Mm -hmm. but then you're not so great when you're together challenging one another because that's the scary part. That's the part where it's like, oh, I'm going to be judged by my peers, I'm going to be judged by my people. Nobody wants to be judged by their people. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to be on the outs, but that's the challenge. That's the thing that um, I want to see happen a whole hell of a lot more is white people challenging other white people and saying, no, we bought into the lie and I get it. Our, our, our parents bought into the lie, their parents bought into the lie, and nobody's blaming anybody. It started way, 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 way back, over four or 500 years ago. We're not blaming anybody. What we're saying is it was bullshit, mm-hmm. and it was harmful, and it was horrific. It was a, a community of people being literally raped in every um sense of the word over and over and over and over again for over 400 years comprehend that and move on stop being a perpetrator and get on the recovery wagon yeah get on it man and you can't get on it until you acknowledge it yeah you know Stop what, being well, I think, you, know, you know what is interesting? Sorry, I don't like cutting cutting you off, Cozy. I, I sorry, Laura. I just I, I I bring up. I want to go back to bringing up that piece because I I didn't know that. Right? I it's not like somebody was like, you know what? I'd really like to do for a living sell drugs. I bring up that because it's the systemic piece and mm-hmm. how how there's so many layers. Like I could talk. Survive you about this forever, mm-hmm. but I, I also, first of all, doing doing this work, um, you know, as a white person trying to educate myself, this is going to be a lifetime. I, I'm not going to be cured. I'm not going to be the all knower. Like it's going to take a lifetime for me to unlearn all this shit I've learned. So you know, I I think about too when I was, uh, you know, in school, I was working on uh, what they call the disproportionate minority contact, which is looking at the um, higher amounts of 
kids of color serving time as opposed to white kids for the same crime. So there's so many layers. So I just really want to encourage our listeners, first of all, to know how um, how lucky we are that Cozy's taking the time to like explain this to us and talk to us about this because I think that it's really important to educate ourselves. Look up redlining, look up tone policing, look up historical factors mm-hmm. around people of color. Um, it's important that we, you know, we do. And, and let's learn together. Let's and what I need to listen But I also need the okay. listeners to know that this isn't a poor black people segment. Not right. at all. That not at right. all. This is just a reality. This is just right. the reality of where our society is, where it's been from my perspective. Um, and I know perspectives of many others, but this is just a reality. This is not, I don't need you to feel sad or sorry or anything. I just need you as an individual to say, I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm not going to be a perpetrator. And in fact, I'm going to challenge the inequities that I see when I have an opportunity and we all have opportunities. Um, They're not always daily, especially with COVID when a lot of us are isolated and things like that, but they're there. You have an opportunity on your social media. How many times have you seen something inappropriate on your social media page and you just scrolled by because you didn't want to be that person to have to say something and then get into this negative thing about it um, and all of that? Well, maybe you don't want to challenge that person publicly, but it doesn't mean that you can't instant message that person and say, hey, you know what? I read your post and I really think it's off color. I really think it's inappropriate. And I think it perpetuates discrimination and racism in our country. And I'm hoping you're going to take a different look. Or if you want to talk to me about it, let's talk about it. Because I've done that personally. And, 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 and these are people who I call Christian friends, good Christian friends, um, white women that I have um, developed great relationships with. And it's been sad. It's been sad because they just often can't see, um, especially when uh, President Trump was in office, um, it was very difficult for me to to see many of my uh, friends from back home. Mind you, I worked at a police department for seven years. So I was very rooted into, those were my brothers and sisters in blue. Um, and, um, And yet many of them very racist. And so um, it, 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 when Trump was in office, it was sad to see how many supported him because it, the reality was for me is that if you can support a president that hates so many people, blatantly hates black people, people of color, but especially black people, how can you love me if you support somebody that hates me yeah that makes perfect sense how could you love me yeah and i think and it's not about republican democrat all of that it's about humanity it's about you support a man who wants discord wants to have division wants to promote racism why what how could you Do you not see me? And it just goes back to the fact that the reality is they didn't see me as black. 
And I knew that when I worked there, I was cozy blow. I was not cozy blow a black woman mm. who worked there. I was cozy blow. It was easy to dismiss my blackness because for me, it's easy for me to fit in into lots of different groups. First of all, I was raised that way. That's, you know, part of being able to code shift and do all these things to fit in. So it was easy. That wasn't hard for me. I love all people. So that's just me as an individual, easy. However, it allowed them, it made it easier for them to not see me in many arenas. I think I just want to say something and I, I you said something really um, beautiful a few minutes ago where you said really like, People just need to get on board. It's as simple as that. You said this is not like just some angry black woman rant. This is like, a, this is the truth. Get on board. You're either on board or you're not. And, you know, I think something I've noticed um, just in society, I noticed it, I'll use my, 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 my husband who I'm in the middle, I'm separated from getting divorced, abusive man. And you know, he grew up with a dad who made black jokes and Hispanic jokes and made fun of people and, and on the construction site and they all laughed about it and it's funny and they'll say it to your face and ha ha ha. And he still perpetuates that and carries it on and, you know, and, and says, you know, whether it's about women or people of color or, you know, any minority, there's some kind of stereotypical joke, there's some kind of degrading comment. And, you know, the people that he would associate with, they all just laugh along with it. And they go, well, we're just joking. It doesn't matter. But it does matter. And I think that is and like, it's not funny. And it's, it's not funny. It's not funny. And it freaking matters. And I think that is like, that is just it, it, it really is as simple as that. It matters. End of story. And people think that the joking is that, that somehow people think that if it's called a joke, that it's some kind of distant reality. When the reality is when you joke, it is rooted in a belief. Yeah. It's rooted in a belief and in an experience. Yeah. So you can joke. Let I me mean, look at some of our most, you know, famous um, comedians of the world. You know, they joked about things that they knew about, things that they had experiences with. So it was rooted in a belief. It wasn't some like made up reality. Rare, rarely do you hear comedians pulling jokes from someone else's reality or some, you know, or some like something that doesn't exist. Right. Some made up thing. It typically is something that has happened that is real that they've taken from and they've been able to turn it into this 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 uh, comical thing, which is totally fine unless it's at the expense of an individual, a group of people. That's when it becomes different. Yeah, I don't think it's fine because I think of like think of like an abusive person, right? Like who says to their wife like something mean and then the wife gets offended and he's like god i was just joking and then all yeah, of a sudden you're like wow like what's wrong with me i shouldn't have. it's like that's no different it's like it's abuse it is abuse. because that's offensive to her right that was attack right. on her right that was that that was that kind of microaggression that subtle attack that minimizing attack on her 
And then when somebody calls you out, because remember, most of the time, people who have been oppressed don't call people out. We've tried. They've tried. You know, this is the most exciting. This is the saddest time and the most exciting time in our country to me because we have a collective steady voice that's impactful that is creating change and we have not to say that on many occasions african-americans other allies not to say that they haven't come out and did the same thing however what has happened is the dominant population has been so oppressive that they have only been these one moments in time here moments in time there that have diminished much quicker than we would have liked them to and what we know to be true now is that we can't let it die we can't let that we cannot let it be a moment and so we have collectively agreed as activists as african americans as allies in this fight of all different colors and racial backgrounds that we are going to make it a movement instead of a moment and that is what makes it different for this time and so i really want listeners to understand that if you care about survivors all survivors they are experiencing oppression rooted in a system that has said it's okay to harm others to get your needs met And if you really care about survivors, you will join a movement, a movement of what I call harm no more and stand up in all different arenas and say, no, that's harmful to this person or this collective group of people. And I refuse to be a part of it. I'm gonna educate my children not to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell my family members that I'm a part of this and I um, hope that they're gonna join that movement. And I'm gonna challenge them when they're doing these off-color things that are harming people. Um, And it is what it is, if I lose family or friends, I'm gonna sacrifice for that because I want a world that harms no more. I want a world that at least stands up when people are harming. It used to be where racism was kind of um, under the, in the closet, so to speak. Like people didn't say you like people didn't put it out there other than their family and friends, right? They didn't put it out there because those were the safe spaces to be racist because those other people were racist with you and it was fine. But now we know the closet doors have been flung open I mean, when you have had the head of your country saying, you know, this is what it is. It's okay that it's this way. It gave people that kind of carte blanche to come out of the closet with their racism. And you know what? To me personally, it's okay. Because I want to know who you are. I want to know what you're about. Because then I can adequately keep myself away from you because you're not someone I want to be aligned with. And I can challenge your beliefs. I can challenge your belief. I cannot patronize your business. I can do all the things that I need to do as best I can to be a real part of a movement 
and not be a bystander saying, you go girl, you go boy, you do it. Yeah, that's kind, but it's truly not helpful. I don't need a cheerleader. I need more people on the team. I don't need oh, and- people on the bench. I need people on the team that are willing to actually do something. Nobody can do everything, but everyone can do something. Oh, I love that. Challenge yourself. I, I don't remember who said it, but I've used that. Um, it wasn't me, but I, I, I used that um, throughout my lifetime because I truly believe that no one can do everything, but everybody can do some thing to make a difference if they want to and it starts at home and it expands to your workplace it expands to your social um, surroundings it expands to your neighborhoods and your churches because there's a lot of churches out there and their ministers haven't did one sermon on um, racial inequities because they're scared to ruffle the feathers of the members. Mm. There's a lot of racist Christians. Yeah, very Um, much so. Very, uh, very much so. And so it's sad as a Christian woman see that, but I know that it's there. And so we have to challenge. We have to challenge the people that we love and we care about to be better. I love that. I think that's such a beautiful note to, to close with. I'm just, and I, I hate interrupting you, so I'm so sorry. And, and I I just love what you just um, said because it's so powerful and people need to hear. It. And I can't thank you enough for being here today and doing this. And I know I've thanked you a million times, but it really means a lot. Mm-hmm. It means a lot. It really does um, because. I really hope people hear and listen um, and start doing, you know, being a part of what we need to stop. And I think about the quote too, like when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. So I just wanted to end on, on that note. It, and I think it's, it's always nice to kind of end um, on a note where cozy, you can, um, not that I'm giving you, <laughs> let me reframe this. I'd like to end on what, would you like to say in closing all together? I know what you just said was really beautiful, but if you could say one thing to the listeners as we close out, and I know that's hard to do, what would it be? If you can think of something. Oh goodness. Um, (laughs) (laughs) About domestic abuse. Yeah. Let's see something that I'd want to say. One, I want to thank both of you all for allowing me to be in this space and to um, share my truth, because this is truly my truth and my experiences. Um, Although I do feel they're also the experiences of the African-American community, although we experience things at different levels. Um, So I want to thank you all for that. And I think that um, one of my favorite quotes is um, by Albert Einstein, interestingly enough. Um, And I think it's just because it speaks to me as an advocate and an activist and who I am as a person. Um, So I want the listeners to know that, first of all, I am Cosetta Jane Blow, 
And I am a 50 year old African, proud, proud African-American woman who is a Christian who's not religious. I have a strong relationship in Jesus Christ and the God that I believe in. And for me, my takeaway for you that I'd like to leave with you, I guess today would be um, learn from yesterday, live for today and hope for tomorrow by Albert Einstein. Oh my God. I'm going to write that down. Uh Cosetta Jane Blow, it was amazing to meet you. It was a pleasure to have you. And I want to reiterate what Michelle said. Thank you for taking time out of your day to tell us and our listeners your truth, your experience, and educate our listeners. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, With all of our heart. Thank you. And I want to close on that note because I want that message to ring through everybody's Mm -hmm. mind. What? what Cozy just said. Um, I just want to end with if anybody is experiencing domestic abuse right now or feeling mm-hmm. triggered or anything's coming up for you, please, please, please reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline. They're 24-7. Anybody can call and you can find out where there's a, a local agency in your area who can support you. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE. 1-800-799-SAFE. 97233. And thank you so much. Thank you, Cozy, so much for being the amazing human that you are.